rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Next on Drama on One, Creatives in Conversation. The novels of Kazuo Ishiguro include The Remains of the Day, An Artist of the Floating World and The Unconsoled. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2017. The citation recognised his achievement in creating novels of great emotional force, uncovering the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. He spoke to Miles Dungan in a Rattlebag public interview recorded in 2005, coinciding with the publication of his novel Never Let Me Go. Ishiguro was born in Nagasaki in 1954 and moved to Britain at the age of five. He began by talking about his birthplace and its many associations. Well, I have many memories. It's, it's, not, it's not like I just remember one or two things. I mean, it's the place of my childhood. Um, but the odd thing is, of course, to you, um, you, know, you the, the word Nagasaki is probably inevitably associated with the atomic bomb. Um, I didn't realize this for a long time. And for me, Nagasaki is a place of my childhood. Uh, and I, I was born there nine years after the atomic bomb, but by then, I guess um, adults kept the horrible memories from the children. And it was very much a, a town that was looking to the future. It was rebuilding. Um, and people referred to the bomb, but only in passing. It was like a marker in time. You know, people say that bridge was there before the bomb, or um, that was built after the bomb. So I knew, I knew very much this word, Genshi Bakudan, which means atomic bomb. But uh, I thought every city had an atomic bomb. And it was only when I came to England and I was at school in England. I, I still remember this moment. I, was, I think I was six or seven years old. And I was looking in a school encyclopedia. And I noticed that Nagasaki was in it. And there was a picture of a mushroom cloud. And, it, and I, that's when I realized that this place I had come from was a place of world renown. And only one of two places in history ever to suffer an atomic attack. And I remember a kind of curious sense of pride I felt about that. And that was really the first time I, I had this notion of what Nagasaki meant to a lot of other people. Of course, after the war, it had a terrible resonance, partly because of what had been done, but also because of what people feared might happen in the future as the nuclear arsenals piled up. But I, 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 I don't know what the younger generation feels about Nagasaki or Hiroshima these days, but to me, first and foremost, it's, it's a place of my childhood. It's a place of my grandparents, the house that I can still reproduce, of my kindergarten. It's not a place of uh, ashes and mushroom clouds. At what point then, obviously Japanese would have been your first native language, your first spoken language, at what point did English begin to push out Japanese once you'd moved to England? Well, pretty rapidly, because in, uh, I guess in those, uh, today, you know, a family could arrive in England, or certainly in London, and, and you could pretty quickly be put in touch with other people from your own country. I mean, there seems to be every kind of uh, nationality living there. In those days, I th there were no Japanese people. I, I don't think we saw another Japanese person in England until five years after we arrived. I remember once a Korean guy coming to visit us simply because he was Korean. Yeah. Um, it, it, and so, although I continued to speak Japanese at home to my parents, um, the world outside was entirely in English. And so I very rapidly became an English speaker. But I should say, I, I learned a lot of my English in the early years of, of television. And what I watched were cowboy films, you know, uh, 
rawhide and things like this. So, and I was growing up in home counties, England, Guildford. Um, and so uh, my grip, my grasp of English was very odd. I would often turn up at school and I would say, howdy. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I couldn't, I didn't understand that there was a difference between kind of Wild West English and, and what was suitable in early 1960s home counties, England. But I kind of muddled through. And in early 1960s home counties, England, it would not have been in any sense a multicultural area. England was not a multicultural country, really, in those days. Uh, were you, uh, did you arrive in a society that was conscious of Japanese war camps, prisoner of war camps, for example? Were you exposed to the kind of comic book representations of Japanese people as evil, psychotic villains? Did, did you come in for any of that? Yes and no. Um, People were very conscious of the war, but I think that generation that came through the war, looking back now, had a very sophisticated view about you know, families, people. Um, because looking back now, I'm amazed at how kindly we were treated. We lived in a little cul-de-sac where, in fact, my parents still live to this very day, on the edge of this town, home county's town. And um, everyone knew everybody in that little cul-de-sac. And we received enormous kind of practical help, uh, you know, friendly help. Um, and I, I'm amazed when I think back now. Of course, at the time, I, I didn't know any different. I, I was just a kid of five years old. But uh, I'm surprised that there wasn't more prejudice. And I remember one specific incident, a, a neighbor of ours. I, I'd, I'd often been playing with this little girl uh, who was the daughter of this neighbor. Uh, but one Guy Fawkes night, um, I remember he just turned away and went away when he saw my mother come to fetch me. And his wife came and apologized and said that he had been in a Japanese prison or war camp and still suffered nightmares and trauma. And uh, just her turning up suddenly in the dark had triggered off these memories. And we'd known these people for a long time, and uh, we didn't know about this. And so it, things like this would come up. But um, looking back now, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished at, at how, um, how well received we were. I think in those days, people didn't have any kind of set view about foreigners. Um, the immigration issue hadn't turned into what it was later to turn into. Perhaps we were outside of that anyway, being kind of middle-class uh, Japanese people. I don't know. The comic book ja uh, kind of Japanese fiends, yeah, yes, the, the, they were there very much, but oddly my school friends didn't seem to understand that I, I was also Japanese. But I remember in those days kids still played war in the playground. And I, I always remember campaigning that we should fight the Germans, not the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to what extent then were your first two novels, The Pale View of the Hills and An Artist of the Floating World, an attempt by you to memorialize Japan for yourself before it, it began to fade from your memory? Yes, looking back, I, mean, I didn't realize this at the time, but I think this perhaps was the key thing that made me a writer. Uh, because I, I grew up with very few literary ambitions. Um, but what I did have as I was growing up was a very strong sense of the country that I had left. And, and it was also the country to which I thought I was going to return. We always thought we'll return the following year. Uh, I had left behind my grandparents, I'd left behind friends, toys. Um, and so I think I always had this very important country building up in my head, a place called Japan where I'd come from, where I was ultimately going to live. And I guess when I became an adult and realized that I, I never would actually go, go and live there, 
uh, a number of interesting things started to happen. I, I think one of them was that I realized that this Japan, this very precious Japan that, that I kept with me, which was a source of some of my confidence, uh, actually didn't exist anywhere outside of my head. You know, I couldn't get on a plane and go there. Um, it, was some, it was a country built up of memory and speculation. To some extent, it was the, it was the country of childhood. Um, and the other thing I realized, as you suggested there, was that with every year I grew older, these memories would get paler and paler. You know, they, they were fading away. And it, at the time when I wrote my first novel, I, I, I thought I, you know, I was addressing this important theme, that important theme. Uh, looking back now, I think the, the major motivation was just to nail that Japan, put it down on paper, make it safe before it faded away forever. Now, your first two novels were garlanded, they won awards, but I think it would be fair to say that you moved from being, you know, engaging the attention of those in the literary world to engaging the attention of those in the wider world with the remains of the day. You, you, you have a, a copy of the novel there with you and you're going to uh, read a little bit from it for us and uh, then we can, uh, we can talk about it after that. What, uh, what bit have you selected? Um, well, the, the narrator of The Remains of the Day is a stuffy old English butler. Uh, not a bit like me, so it, it's, it's uh, very difficult for me to read this part. As you, um, um, let me apologize for, for my voice. I don't usually sound quite this nasal, but I, I have a kind of a cold today. So This is, this is part of a long monologue that, uh, um, that we find near the beginning of the book, where he's uh, having a long discussion with himself about what makes a butler great? What is a truly great butler? And, and towards the end he comes to this conclusion. And let me now posit this. Dignity has to do crucially with a butler's ability not to abandon the professional being he inhabits. Lesser butlers will abandon their professional being for the private one at the least provocation. For such persons, being a butler is like playing some pantomime role. A small push, a slight stumble, and the facade will drop off to reveal the actor underneath. The great butlers are great by virtue of their ability to inhabit their professional role and inhabit it to the utmost. They will not be shaken out by external events, however surprising, alarming or vexing. They wear their professionalism as a decent gentleman will wear his suit. He will not let ruffians or circumstances tear it off him in the public gaze. He will discard it when and only when he wills to do so. And this would invariably be when he is entirely alone. It is, as I say, a matter of dignity. It is sometimes said that butlers only truly exist in England. Other countries, whatever title is actually used, have only manservants. I tend to believe this is true. Continentals are unable to be butlers because they are, as a breed, incapable of the emotional restraint which only the English race is capable of. Continentals, and by and large the Celts, as you will no doubt agree, are as a rule unable to control themselves in moments of strong emotion, and are thus unable to maintain a professional demeanour other than in the least challenging of situations. If I may return to my earlier metaphor, you will excuse my putting it so coarsely, they are like a man who will, at the slightest provocation, tear off his suit and his shirt and run about screaming. In a word, dignity is beyond such persons. We English have an important advantage over foreigners in this respect, 
And it is for this reason that when you think of a great butler, he is bound almost by definition to be an Englishman. After two novels set in Japan, was the setting for The Remains of the Day a deliberate attempt by you to distance yourself as much as possible from your previous work? It couldn't be more different. I think there was an element of that, but although on the surface it seems very different, to, to some extent it's a rewrite of my second novel. You know, I, I, I don't have many ideas, you see. So, <laughs> <laughs> my second novel is set in post-war Japan. This is set in post-war England. Um, but um, yes, there is an element of what you say that I had become very uncomfortable during, the, during my first two novels um, because people in England in those days immediately assumed that I was trying to explain Japanese culture to the West. I was some sort of foreign correspondent based in London. You know, anything that had a Japanese theme, people asked me to review, and you know, I would turn these down. But the turning point came when once um, Channel 4 Television, uh, the news program, asked me to come on to discuss the impending trade war between the United States and Japan. And I thought, you know, why on earth do they think I, I'm an expert, you know, an authority on such a matter? It's, it's simply because I, I, you know, I have a Japanese name, a Japanese face. And I felt a, a great charlatan. Because as I explained earlier, my relationship to Japan was a remote one, a distant one. Although it had a very important emotional link, I was not an expert on Japanese matters. And, and also, I guess, I felt that in some ways um, I was being misunderstood as a novelist. Uh, because my purpose in writing those early Japanese books were not journalistic. I wasn't trying to inform people about anything. I was trying to... I was trying to tell universal stories. And so I, I was determined to see for myself and to show other people, my readers, I guess, that uh, I could write outside of that Japanese setting. And I, I thought maybe then people will see that I'm not somebody who is primarily writing to explain the mysterious Japanese psychology to, to the West. You know, um, uh, I was actually dealing in universal themes. We're talking about Remains of the Day. It's about a lot of different things, but you've said, for example, that the film, which is an ivory film, a merchant ivory film, is about emotional repression, while the book is about self-denial. What, what do you see as the, the essential difference between the two, or differences between the two? Um, well, first of all, let me say I think that's all right. You know, I, I, think, I think that's fine. Um, I think films should be different to the books. It's a work of art in its own right. And I, th I think the movie was a, was a tremendous work in itself. Um, um, but inevitably, the th themes become different. And I thought, I thought Anthony Hopkins' performance was, was a terrific study in, in some kind of emotional repression, yes. Probably the butler in my book, I, I guess I, you know, once I made this distinction, I, I quoted somebody else who made this distinction. Because Your I, agent, I, I think, wasn't it? Yes, I think, it, yes, I have a very perceptive agent who, who knows more about my work than I do. <laughs> um, but I think she, I thought she was very right in this respect. In the book, these people do have an overwhelming sense of duty. And they think that in order to make their lives worthwhile, they will, they will deny themselves certain things. They'll deny themselves what most of us in this room would, would, would regard as, um, uh, as the right to participate in, in larger decision-making processes. They deny themselves to some extent uh, a kind of a, a, a moral jurisdiction. 
they say, well, let's leave it up to the people who know. Uh, our, our job is simply to do our best and work for them. And of course, somewhere along the way, they also deny themselves the privilege of being loved and loving one another. Because they, that too, they feel is somehow incompatible with their sense of duty. It's a, it's a sadly misguided uh, view, but in a sense, I have some sympathy for them because they're trying, in the only way they know how, to, to lead decent lives or, or, or to take a sense of pride from, from what are probably you know, rather sad little lives. You also said, uh, I was uh, watching the, the movie again recently, and in the DVD version, there's a, a, a documentary featurette, and you say that it's a movie about waste. And I think you were talking about personal waste and political waste. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for me? Ah, yes. Well, it's, I, it's a long time since I've watched this uh, DVD. So I'm not quite sure what I was saying, but, <laughs> but waste... Um, if I, if I had to write American how-to kind of books, I would probably write a book, How to Waste Your Life. Um, and The Remains of the Day, it, I guess it, it, it shows you two excellent ways in which you can waste your life. Um, one is in the professional field, um, despite your best intentions, because you don't have a... because you, you refuse to um, take that moral responsibility for what you do. You can waste all your energies and talent. You put it behind something that's not worth supporting. And yeah, that I would get, be Lord Darlington, who is uh, he's a, effectively he's a proto-Nazi, really. That's right. It's about a butler who who serves a, a Nazi sympathizer in the 30s, and after the war, he realizes, I guess, very reluctantly, but he has to accept that the best years of his life and all his huge efforts were spent just serving a man who wasn't worthy of such uh, service. Um, I guess in a way I was trying to say many of us are actually butlers in a, in a moral and political sense. Most of us, we don't, we don't get to run big corporations. We don't run countries. Most of us in this room, you know, uh, we, what we do is we do our little jobs and we offer up our little contribution to somebody up there, you know, our employer, a cause, whatever it is. And we just hope that our contribution will be used well. And we try and take some pride and dignity from doing our little thing well. Uh, but often it's beyond us. Um, we don't quite know how it's going to be used upstairs. And, and to some extent, all right, um, all right, he's an English butler. He, he might, you know, he has stuffy attitudes. But I think there is something universal about his con condition. And that's how many of us can indeed waste the, the professional side of our lives I mean, all too easily. Um, and on the, on the personal side, too, the remains of the days of a good handbook for how to waste your life by fearing too much the arena of the emotions. Yes, of course, we're all afraid of being hurt. Um, but if we protect ourselves too much, perhaps hide behind um, the idea of duty or, or dignity too much uh, because we don't want to expose ourselves, ultimately we'll, we will not be able to love other people we will not be able to recognize love when it comes to us and and that too is a great pity if you go through your life not allowing yourself to love or be loved it's interesting that you should use the word duty because i think a lot of your books are either about duty or have a strong sense of duty about them remains of the day being one uh, when we were orphans uh, being another one and never let me go is uh, classically i think will be will become one of the great books about about duty 
why the emphasis on duty? Is it because it's something that stereotypically we see the Japanese and the English as, as having in common, a sense of duty? It's, it's possible that those cultures have a very pronounced sense of duty, uh, but, but I'm sure people here in Ireland have a sense of duty. I mean, we might, you might call it something else. I think that notion of duty is a, is a very widespread universal one. And I think you, if you look at it carefully, you go to the core of how people try and search for self-respect. And you also go to the heart of how people are manipulated uh, because they don't quite have the perspective to see what they're contributing to. The, the book, The Remains of the Day, is highly internalized. It's told from the very particular viewpoint of the butler, Stevens, and as with all of your narrators, we're never sure how reliable they are, and certainly they are telling the story very much from their point of view. How did you react then to seeing it being externalized in the film version? Because although you do hear the voice of Stevens at the beginning, it's not all shown from Stevens' perspective. Well, I was greatly relieved. I, I do some screenwriting myself, um, and uh, so I know, you know, I understand some of the problems about uh, putting such an internal book, particularly these internal monologues on the screen. And my great dread was that, you know, there'll be these cumbersome voiceovers um, following people around all through the film. And I, I think it was beautifully adapted um, by Ruth Pravajavala. Yeah, she avoided all of that. I think the movie relied enormously on uh, a technically stunning performance from Anthony Hopkins. It, unless you have a very, very good actor who can imply what is going on inside his head, you, you can't do that. Um, inevitably, you know, the first few times I saw takes from the film, I, I had completely rational, unreasonable objections. Like, like uh, you know, I, I thought they had the room completely the wrong way round. You know, uh, and I would wonder how on earth they didn't realize that the door should be over there. Until I realized, of course, this, this, this room had only existed ever in my head. Um, and so after a while, I, you know, I learned very quickly to, to, to let go of the film. I, I think it's a mistake for writers of novels to think of movie versions as a kind of translation. I think the healthiest attitude is, is if you just hope that a very decent film with the same title comes out. It did, more, more, more than did. Moving on to Never Let Me Go, and uh, I'm conscious of the fact that it's a novel about which we can only say a certain amount without, I think, spoiling the, a lot of the enjoyment of, of readers. But it's set mostly in this, what would appear to be a kind of a, almost a Billy Bunter-esque secondary school idealized boarding school, you know, I suppose in the same way uh, that the big house in The Remains of the Day is idealized. This is, this is Hailsham, but it's also set in a world which is a very, very frightening dystopia. It's almost a, a science fiction world. It's not about biotechnology, but there are important biotechnological elements about it, and nothing is exactly what it seems. Um, can you remember where the idea of, of, of uh, setting a novel in a dystopic community came about? Well, what I, what I do know is that I have these boxes in my study, and they're marked student's novel, and they go back 15 years. And I was always writing about this group of young people who lived in the English countryside, usually in wrecked farmhouses, and I called them students 
but I knew there wasn't a university anywhere near them or any, any teachers. And um, I knew that some strange fate hung over these people. And I knew that I wanted to write about them for particular reasons. You know, I, I, I wanted them to somehow stand for the entire, our entire kind of lifespan, just, just while they were young. I mean, that sounds rather odd, but uh, I was looking for some way of metaphorically talking about the whole human lifespan and the fact that we had a limited amount of time to live and how we faced up to mortality. Uh, but I wanted to do that without having any old people come on the scene. Um, so I knew that these, pe these kids were called students, but I could never get the framework. Uh, and I ended up writing The Unconsoled, which has nothing to do with the student's novel. And then after that, I, I, I tried again. And, and I have more pages about these students doing various things, but uh, that I couldn't get it right either. I, I had an idea that they had something to do with nuclear weapons being found in England and stuff like this, but it just, I guess I was still in a Cold War mentality. Uh, and, it, and so I wrote another novel, When We Were Orphans, and it's only this time round, third time round, I went back to my student's book. All this time I kept telling my wife I was trying to write a campus novel, and she was horrified. <laughs> but, um, and because I guessed uh, all these issues about uh, biotechnology were now in the air, um, I suddenly, I was listening to, a, to an argument about biotechnology, Dolly the sheep, you know, stem cell research, and I suddenly had the framework uh, to to put around these students. And Hailsham itself is apparently an idyllic existence. Is this again the the mythologizing? Is this back to, to the sort of the Wild West big house thing that you have uh, you you mythologize? You you pick an aspect of England which is a, more stereotypical than real. Well, only a certain part of the novel takes place in this uh, idyllic boarding, mm. boarding school. Uh, it's not so much... I wasn't trying to create a mythical England around the boarding school. I think the boarding school, for me, is like a physical embodiment of, to some extent, of the whole childhood experience. So I never went to boarding school. My, my daughter doesn't go to boarding school. I, I'm not very close to the boarding school experience directly. But somehow, I feel... It's, it, I feel there are many things that we all go through as children uh, that, are very, that actually have deep connections with, with something like a boarding school experience. I think all children are necessarily kept in a kind of a bubble, at least the lucky ones. Um, as a parent, I'm very conscious of the fact that you know, when my daughter was young, uh, we, we kept her in a bubble. Uh, we, and we pretended that the world was a much nicer place than it really was. And, all other adults who came anywhere near her would instinctively enter into this conspiracy with us. And, and, you, and, and as you all know, if you walk around the streets with a four-year-old or five-year-old, it's amazing. Every passerby wants to, is desperate to enter into, into this conspiracy with you. They put on smiley faces and uh, uh, speak in a funny voice. And if people are quarreling, they stop. You know, the, everyone wants the child to stay in this bubble and believe that the world that awaits this child is actually a kinder, nicer place than it actually will be. But, but then you have to start drip-feeding bits of information into that bubble to help them prepare. And in a sense, I think the boarding school environment struck me as, as a very good kind of physical embodiment of what all childhood is like. You, know, you keep away the children in some secluded place. You manage very deliberately 
the information they have about what awaits them. And from the inside, because I, I tell the story from the point of view of the children, uh, it's a life full of speculation and being told things factually that you don't really understand about what awaits you. Uh, being excited and slightly afraid of what's out there. Today's programme was produced by Nula O'Neill. Research was by Sinead Gleeson. On sound were Sean Campbell and Eddie O'Halloran. Our thanks to Liz Knight and all the staff and faculty of the Smurfit Graduate School of Business in UCD for welcoming us here today. And above all, our thanks to you, Kazuo Ishiguro. Thank you very much indeed. And in that edition of Creatives in Conversation, you heard Kazuo Ishiguro speaking to Miles Dungan in a rattlebag public interview recorded at UCD in 2005. The interview in full is available at rte.ie slash drama on one. Next week, we'll hear Farag La Moira Vacanti, followed by another chance to hear the voice of Seamus Heaney as we approach his 10th anniversary. The complete archive of Creatives in Conversation and all editions of the Drama on One podcast are available at the website rte.ie slash drama on one. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.